Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. I'm here today with Jim Day, the author of Diamonds in the Rough, A History of Alabama's Cahaba Coldfield, published by the University of Alabama Press in 2013 and the 2014 winner of the Clinton Jackson Coley Award for Best Book on Local History. Jim, thank you so much for being here and congratulations on your award. Thank you, Marty. It's a pleasure. I am a professor of history at the University of Montevallo have been here for about 17 years and actually grew up in Montevallo, left after high school, spent a career in the Army, and then ended up back home. It's good to teach history back where I grew up. My interest in uh, the Cahaba coal field actually began uh, as a young fellow. My father grew up in Piper, which is a coal mining town uh, in northern Bibb County, and my grandfather, uh, whom I never met, owned a store and a dairy that competed with the commissary at the Little Cahaba Coal Company. When I was a young boy, my dad used to walk me around the place and tell me where the tipple used to be, where the company offices used to be, where folks lived, where the school was, where the churches were, and things like that. I also remember riding out toward Marvel, another little area in Bibb County, and seeing the mine openings. But had kind of a fascination with that, really more of the sense of the people and the communities that were no longer there. There was nothing except for the old concrete vault at Piper, I remember one of the rail lines that was still there, a stop sign and part of the tipple that fell in shortly after I gained recollection of that area. So for me, it was primarily pine trees and little kudzu uh, in other places and things like that. But I had to imagine the coal operations in my mind's eye. And certainly as a little fella, I didn't really have a good appreciation of that. But when I was on active duty in the Army, I had an opportunity to go to advanced civil schooling, went to the University of Georgia to work on a master's degree before going to West Point to teach for a three-year tour. And while I was trying to decide about a master's thesis topic, I had the idea of recreating Piper, get a sense of exactly who lived where, what went on, what life was like. As I explored that a little bit more fully, I realized that given the time constraints the Army had put on me, I really did not have time to get into the detailed research that was required to do that work. So I ended up doing my master's thesis on the Korean War, went and taught uh, military history, and then finished out my military career in 1995. Shortly thereafter, I had an opportunity to enroll in the doctoral program at Auburn University, met with Dr. Wayne Flint and Dr. David Lewis, who talked with me about writing that history of Piper as a coal mining community. As I got to working on that, I realized that Piper was very much like other coal mining communities in Bibb County, and then frankly extending to the uh, entire Cahaba coal field, which extends about 67 miles. Coal mining really has permeated uh, this entire area, not just geographically, but also socially. I realized that many of the people whom I knew uh, growing up in the Montevallo area actually had ties to coal mining 
mining was not readily apparent uh, as a young fellow growing up in Montevallo proper, but I knew that Aldrich was just to the west. I knew that Boothton was on the other side of Pea Ridge, and then, of course, you get into Marvel, Coliner, Piper, and then areas on out toward Blockton and West Blockton in Bibb County. Also knew that there was coal mining up toward Helena and that area, but my research revealed that there were even more coal mines than I knew about. So I began to use local histories to piece together the larger picture. Also had an opportunity to meet Ken Penhale in Helena, who had salvaged some papers and letters and the like from Joseph Squire, who was an English mining engineer, migrated to the United States in 1849, spent Ten years then working his way across the Midwest out to the Missouri River Valley where he was involved in coal mining operations. And in 1859, he learned of some extraction problems in present-day Aldrich. So he came to central Alabama, worked with a couple of entities there. One was a the person whom I determined to be the coal mining pioneer, William Phineas Brown who was a businessman who had come south from Vermont, had been involved in various uh, business ventures, but eventually married Margaret Stevens, moved to the Wilton area just south of Montevallo, and then began to mine coal west of Montevallo in 1849. By the time we got into the mid to early 1850s, William Phineas Brown's primary competition was the Alabama Coal Mining Company. They were actually mining the same seam, just in different pits. But things were tough at that point. They had transportation issues. They had labor issues. And certainly in the 1850s, they were reliant on slave labor. They had issues of getting the coal to market. The principle was to go to Selma, put it on barges and on the Alabama River, and you could go east to Montgomery or south to Mobile and then to New Orleans and to other areas. The problem was getting the coal from central Alabama down to Selma. They would have liked to put it on barges up in this area, but they had shoals at uh, Centerville. They couldn't float the coal to the south, so they had to rely on the railroad at Wilton. So Brown built a tramway from present-day Aldrich down to Wilton so he could get the coal out of the pit to the railhead and then load the rail cars and get them to Selma. Quality control was another issue. Most of the time, the coal was dirty. They had all types of challenges. Plus, there was a seasonal market. In the wintertime, high demand for coal. But during the summertime, there was very little demand for coal. So it really was kind of a stop-and-start operation throughout the 1850s. Joseph Squire showed up in 1859, worked alternately for a few years for Brown and also for the Alabama Coal Mining Company, and really established himself as the authority on coal deposits in this area. Eventually worked with Henry de Bardelaben, Truman Aldrich, and James Sloss, the Cahaba field, also opening the Pratt mines west of Birmingham that eventually would supply the coal for fuel to the blast furnaces as Birmingham began its iron industry. Joseph Squire's correspondence were very easy to use. When he received a letter, he would turn the letter over on back and in pencil draft his response, then write the formal letter that he would mail. But what it afforded me as a researcher was I could see both sides of the correspondence as I worked through those letters salvaged from a decrepit barn, Squire's home place and office in Helena along Buck Creek. 
After the Civil War, Squire contracted with Eugene Smith, the state geologist, to write the geological survey of Alabama, really to write a description of coal deposits in the Cahaba field. That was published in 1890. Copies of that still exist today, as well as a map that Squire drew depicting the depth of the seams and the order of the seams and watercolored it to provide some definition. It really is as much a work of art as it is a study in geology and geography. By the turn of the century, between the 19th century and the 20th century, most of the coal in this area had been identified and it was time to exploit it. Cahaba got a slow start because in 1876, uh, Henry de Bardelaven, who was the son-in-law of Daniel Pratt, came to Oxmoor, rebuilt that furnace that had been destroyed by Wilson's Raiders in the spring of 1865, and they did some coking experiments there, determining which coal would coke more readily. And coke is to coal as charcoal is to wood. It's an intermediate fuel and was better in the blast furnaces because it wasn't as soft as coal. Therefore, it would stand up under the weight of the iron ore and the limestone that were put into the blast furnace uh, when they were melting the, the iron and then drawing it off to make pig iron. DeBard, Laban, and Pratt came to Oxmoor, did some tests in 1876, and determined that coal from the warrior field actually coked more readily than the coal in the Cahaba field. There are about 17 different grades of coal going from anthracite, which is the hardest and cleanest burning, to peat. The warrior field really became the primary source of coal for the Birmingham district, and this is the part that I found in my research that made Cahaba unique, and that is that because of a slightly different grade of coal, a little bit more sulfur, a little bit more ash content and the like, that Cahaba coal had different usage. Was used to make natural gas, domestic heating, and also locomotives. Those markets developed to the south in Alabama along the Alabama River Basin and then began to be exploited by various entrepreneurs who came to the Cahaba field right around the turn of the century. As it turns out, uh, Henry DeBartolaven was involved, uh, Truman Aldrich was involved, his brother William Aldrich came to Alabama, also from New York, and then partnered with him to establish the town of Aldrich. But many of these communities sprung up around the mining operations and began to exploit the coal in the early part of the 20th century, which began to develop coal towns. In fact, the coal towns really didn't come of age until around World War I. Prior to that, uh, it's pretty rough and ready kind of existence. A lot of single miners living in areas that were primarily coal mining camps, much as what we think of with the gold rush in California, where you had prospectors out on their own. And so you had a lot of brothels, saloons, the attractions for single men. But with the advent of World War I, many European immigrants returned to the old country to fight for their home countries. Many of the single men were drafted, and that meant that the coal mining was performed by married men who obviously brought wives and children to the community. So rather than being mining camps, they were transformed into mining towns. And with that came the need for medical care, recreation, churches, schools, and so many of the companies infuse those services into the coal towns. And that development defines the second part of my book. I move from a chronological treatment of the development of the coal field 
to a more topical approach and uh, talk about the coal towns, describing them, talk about the development of coal towns in various places, uh, specific entrepreneurs who developed those towns. Uh, there was a deliberate process that they went through uh, in developing the towns. In four areas in uh, the Cahaba field, convicts were used. These were leased by the companies from the state prison, and the government negotiated the contracts, and ultimately the convict lease system constituted 6% of the state budget, which is one of the reasons that it lasted so long, really more than half a century, and did not end until 1927-28 with legislation that imposed a gasoline tax and would pay for road repairs and upkeep so that they took the convicts out of the mines and then put them into the road camps to maintain the roads. Companies also implemented welfare capitalism. Historians look at that in two different ways, some of them more positive, some of them more negative. Some of them look at it as social control, but it provided basic services for the people, really kind of providing that community atmosphere. And from the owner-operator standpoint, was that in providing those services, then that created a contented workforce, a fairly happy community, and therefore any attempts by labor organizers to come in were thwarted or minimized. And development of the labor unions and the like is another part of that story that I deal with in one chapter of the book. What we have then is in the first half century of the 20th century, coal is doing pretty well. The heyday is probably the 1920s, 1930s. World War II gives a little boost, but by the 1950s, other fuel sources displace coal. It's getting more expensive to extract, so most of the coal towns in the Cahaba field are sold. The structures are torn down, sold for other purposes, and many of these mining communities then became ghost towns. There are a few that continue to exist, like West Blockton, Aldrich, but for the most part, these mining communities are gone. That's the story that I try to tell, trying to give voice to these folks who did that work for a little more than a century in central Alabama. One of the things that I thought was absolutely fascinating is how coal pirates pull the pillars out of the mine rooms and excavate that coal. Can you address that? Yes, those are the wagon or truck mines, and that was very dangerous work. The technique during the underground mining days was the room and pillar technique, where they would excavate the coal there, but then leave a pillar to hold up the roof, and then they would go through and, and honeycomb the entire area as they followed the coal seam through. The major companies shut down, moved to other areas, but they would leave these areas uh, open so that the fellows who had a truck or a wagon that they could load with coal then would go back in, and I've heard some accounts of how they do this. They might take an old automobile engine, set it up out there so they could get some electricity running there so they could get a little bit of light, and then they would tie a rope around those pillars, maybe hook it to a truck, and just pull the pillars down and let the roof cave in on top of it. Then they'd try to get the coal out as best they could, load up one truck load or one wagon load, and sell that either for domestic heating or perhaps steam uh, production for a local company or something like that. really was a form of individual entrepreneurship that was very dangerous but also very ingenious in trying to get those last remnants of the coal out of these areas. In any extractive industry, there is an environmental as well as a social and personal price for those conveniences. Jim, thank you once again for joining us, and congratulations in uh, winning the Coley Award for 2014. 
Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to, to share some information about my book. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.